Well, I'm going to invite you to stand uh, one more time if you're able to do so before I get to the teaching portion. And uh, this Sunday, first Sunday of the month, we celebrate communion. Uh, We are looking at maybe even doing communion stations at the end of every service, uh, but for now we're doing it together uh, the first Sunday. Um, I want to say just a a thing here. My name's Shell. I'm the lead pastor here at Pilgrim. And about once a month, I try to have a guest or an in-house guest uh, teach or preach. Not that I don't love preaching and teaching. I absolutely do. Next Sunday is going to be about uh, subversive submission out of 1 Peter. How do we balance our role in the state with our role of also being people who are called to bless wherever we are? Um, But we are going to have a guest here. And this week's been one of those crazy weeks. And I want to say thank you to those that helped or came out either to the Halloween outreach. Uh, We handed out tons of candy in our neighborhood and pilgrim cards attached to some of the candy, at least the good candy, uh, in my opinion. And then uh, we prayed for our neighbors as they were coming by as well. Uh, We had people that showed up, uh, went to the Jesus Collective, a meeting house and sort of an Anabaptist, Baptist work that's trying to form here. Uh, That was great stuff. And then Scott Erickson event, we partnered with three other churches and sort of a low threshold, sort of invite people to consider deeper things in our lives than just simply what our world says, the material or the external things. And uh, that was a great event. I'm glad many of you came out uh, and helped. some helped with that as well. We had about 185 people down at the Vancouver Public Library downtown, so that was pretty exciting as well. Um, and Jamie Smith lectures at Regent. It's been one of those weeks, so I am delighted uh, to be out of my normal cycle of when I have a guest in to have a guest in this morning to just kind of enjoy all the other things this week as well. So we're going to look at the text uh, that our guest is going to be sharing, and I'll introduce him after we read the scripture. Uh, but it should be on the screen, and it's just a short passage, and I'm going to read it off the screen as well. So hear this uh, from the New Testament, from the book of Corinthians to the church at Corinth. The apostle Paul is writing, and he says this, For we would not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who recommend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves... And compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Paul talking about himself in the plural, but we will not boast beyond certain limits, but will confine our boasting to according to the limits to the work to which God has appointed us that reaches even as far as you. For we were not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach as far as you. Because we were the first to reach as far as you with the gospel about Jesus Christ. And he's talking to that church, telling him, how did they come to know? And verse 15, nor do we boast beyond certain limits in the work done by others. But we hope that as your faith continues to grow, our work may be greatly expanded among you according to our limits. So that we may preach the gospel in the regions that lie beyond you and not boast of work already done in another person's area. But the Lord, but the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. For it is not the person who commends himself who is approved, but the person the Lord commends. The word of the Lord. And everyone said, thanks be to God. Uh, you can be seated. This morning, uh, we are delighted, and I'm going to move this table here in just a second. I, um, we're delighted to welcome Jacob John. And uh, Jacob is a pastor. Uh, if you read in the newsletter, there's a little bit of a summary. He was, grew up in India and spent a season of his adult life in Bahrain in the Middle East, and now he's in Vancouver. Um, he studied briefly at Regent College and pastored at Emmanuel Baptist before uh, launching a church called Acts 29. And one of the unique things in terms of Pilgrim in Acts 29 is there's some cross-pollinization. Acts 29 also meets in this facility. There's two other churches, three other churches besides Pilgrim that meet here over the course of a weekend. And so uh, some amazing stuff happens in this place. Um, and so Acts 29 is about 10 years old. How old? How many years? 14 years old uh, and has been doing great ministry here in Vancouver. And also Jacob has sort of a gift that I would call a bit of apostolic. I don't know what language he would use, um, but involved also in planting churches, not only uh, in Canada, but around the world and travels frequently uh, to the Middle East, uh, to to um, the Asian subcontinent, to uh, Mongolia, other places around the world, uh, and is involved in raising up leaders and churches. And so there's a real gift on this man's life, a real anointing that the whole Lord has given him. And so I'm delighted this morning that he said yes to come and to share. Uh, And so would you put your hands together and give a warm pilgrim welcome to Jacob John as he comes to share the word. Uh, 
Um, so the topic today was set apart is set apart. And if I were to phrase it differently, it would be that you and I have been set apart by Christ to assist him in setting others apart. That's one of the reasons we exist, eh? You and I have been set apart by Christ to assist him in setting others apart. That's your, that's your job description. At the end of the day, if you have a job right now, it is just so Christ can enter the world through you and the world can enter the kingdom through you. That's why you have a job. Because one of the things Jesus did right on the shores of Galilee when he said, hey, come follow me, was his idea that I could do this on my own if I wanted to, but that's not how I roll. So here's what I want you to do. I'm setting you aside so that you can assist me in setting others aside. That's one of our main functions. And why is he setting people aside? Because he always was looking for a people. God's never been after individuals, really. He's always been trying to form a people, a nation. That was his intent. When he made Adam, it was go forth, multiply. When he brought Moses out, it was with a nation. When he threatened to wipe out everybody and told Moses, let's start all over again, it was let's start with a people. When Noah was brought forth from the ark, it was let's start a people. When Jesus came, it was his idea of let's start a people. And so he's always been after people. It's we who've begun to think that it's about the individual Christian. And it's really not, eh? He's always been after people. And so the idea of church as the body of Christ makes sense. I remember this uh, lady that used to be at a church I used to pastor at. She'd walk into the church and you wouldn't think there was anything wrong with her. And then she'd come sit in the front and she'd lift her leg. And that's when you'd realize that though the leg looked exactly the same color as her other leg, the moment she put it up, you'd realize that it was a prosthetic limb. But it was so well made that you wouldn't know the difference. But as soon as she put it up on the um, stool that she would bring, you knew that it was an artificial limb. And at night, she would disconnect it, put it aside, and during the day, she would connect it, and she'd walk. And sometimes, that's how church becomes, eh? Where we have a two-hour service, or we have a meeting, and then we go home, and we disconnect and put it aside. And then, when the next meeting or the next Sunday comes, we put it back on, and we're part of the church, and it doesn't work that way. Because either I'm part of it 24-7, or I'm not. Because nowhere in the Bible, and this... It's perhaps a new concept from our individualized ways of looking at things. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that I'm a little Christian who comes together, joins a whole lot of other little Christians to become a big Christ. Never says that. It says that you are a part. You are like an ear, an eye, a nose, a mustache, a tooth. And you come together to form this thing called the body. I mean, look at this amazing nose on this face, eh? That was not funny at all. It was just an amazing nose. Okay, so look at this nose on this face. Now, imagine if I pull this nose out and put it on the ground. Suddenly, it's just a piece of flesh with some booger in it. That's all it is. Everything that this nose is, is what it is because it finds its significance in the rest of the face. What we don't realize is that your significance comes from what you're a part of. Uh, Eugene Peterson put it that way in the message. Your significance comes from what you're a part of. You disconnect from the body, and I disconnect from the body, and we really are nothing. Which means that when the closing song happens today, we're not disbanding and going home from church. We are the church 24-7. Sunday happens to be an activity of the church. Sunday is just an event. It's an activity of the church. And so if you looked at the next slide, it kind of, uh, yeah, you cannot follow Christ without being an integral part of the body. It's impossible. We, we projected this image that you can just follow Christ. You don't need to be part of the church. Just follow Christ. It's Christ in you. No, it's not Christ in you. It's Christ in you and me. You can't live without me. I can't live without you. doesn't matter that I'm the pastor of Acts 29. My significance, my location, my boundary, my direction, my function, my focus, all of it comes from just one thing, what I'm a part of. 
We are not individual little Christians coming together to form a big Christ. We are little parts and our existence dissolves when we decide that we are no longer a part of this beautiful thing called the body, which means then that I have to consciously make an effort to be dependent upon him, even if I don't like him occasionally. I still have to choose to recognize that if I am not dependent on him, there's a part of me that will not be complete. It's intentionally because we don't normally think so. And the strange thing is, how is it possible to connect to the head if I am not connected to the body? The strange, this, this lady that I was telling you about who used to come to that church, when she takes out that prosthetic limb, it's fine because it never draws anything from the body. It's not connected to the nerves in her head. The brain doesn't tell that prosthetic limb what to do. It is a separate thing that can be removed and that can be put back. But the other leg that she had, man, that would react to little impulses in the brain. That would draw from a heart that pumped blood. That would get its commands from neural centers in the head. But not the other limb. One of the questions I have to ask myself on a regular basis is, so which, which limb are you, Jacob? The prosthetic one that disconnects or the one that stays connected and gets its impulses from the head? Because to be connected to the head, I must be vitally connected to the body. And so to get the benefits that Christ is, I must be part of the body. This is a body with benefits. And so sometimes the reason we don't get all that we need from Christ is because the body is an event that we attend and not an organism that we are vitally connected to. Because here's the truth. The bridegroom only reveals himself fully to the bride. And you're not the bride, you are part of the bride. So to get a full revelation of who Christ is, and to get all the benefits of Christ, the head of the church, I must be vitally connected to you. Awesome, eh? It's good news. So my significance, my function, my role, my direction, my location, my boundaries come from being part of a body 24-7 and not just during meetings. This means then that I have to deliberately cultivate a dependence on him. I have to try and not become self-sufficient. I have to be body-reliant. Just think of that, eh? I can't afford to be self-sufficient even if I can. Even if I have the power to turn stones into bread, I must choose not to so I can be dependent on the baker. It's very deliberate. But when we begin to live like this, now we begin to present to the world a community that looks different. Now the world scratches its head saying, ah shucks, these guys are better than the Lions Club. Right now, we're just competing with the Lions Club and the Rotary Club. Because the whole idea was, can I present to the world an alternate community? A Christ-reflecting alternate community. And why was God creating a community like this? Not so there can be some pastors appointed who make big bucks and do all the work. That's, again, something we created I've got no problem earning the big bucks, man. But really, when you look at the um, scriptures, guess who does the real work in the church? You. I just get paid. (laughs) I mean, that's how it is supposed to be. The most resisted truth and the most revolutionary truth of the kingdom is this, that all the work of service and ministry is done by the saints. It is the most resisted truth. Because the moment we pay somebody, we think, hey, we've paid you, now you better perform. I'll perform, man. I'll equip you to the best of my ability. But I'm only supposed to equip you. I'm not supposed to do the work. Amen. Amen. All the work. And this is the most resisted truth in the church, eh? Because we've professionalized clergy. We pay them, so they need to... Now, do the work. When the truth is, if you are honoring me or paying me for what I'm doing, I'm supposed to equip you to a place where you become everything that God wants you to become so that you can do whatever God wants you to do. This is what apprenticeship was about in Europe in the Middle Ages. 
Can I train you? Can you live with me? Can I model what it looks like to live a life and then engage in craftsmanship so that you become better than me? I love what it says in Mark 5, 3 or Mark 3, 5. It says, and Jesus called to himself the 12 so that they could spend time with him. So that then he could send them out. The whole idea was, if you're called to ministry, then your only intent is, can I equip everybody in the church so they can do what they're supposed to do? All the work of ministry is done by the saints. So Jacob, where are you getting this from? Ephesians 4, 11 to 17, where it says, And God appointed to the church apostles, teachers, pastors, evangelists, prophets. For what? So that they may equip. Towards what? For works of service. Who? The saints. Who's the saints? Us. That's when spontaneous expansion happens. That's what used to happen in the New Testament church. Why? Because it wasn't a Shell, it wasn't a Jacob, it wasn't an Andre, it wasn't a David, it wasn't a, a who did all the work. It was everybody, man. It was everybody. That is why it spread. Hey, do you know how many people Paul worked with? If you look, if you look at the book of Acts and then go through all the epistles, you know how many people Paul worked with throughout his career? If you looked at the New Testament, 99 people. Guess how many were women? 33. Guess how many were full-time ministers? Three. Let's take Jesus. How many did he work with? We think 12. We don't even know the names of the 12. We stop at about six, Peter, James, John, and then a few others, and then we might squeeze Bartholomew in because his name is funny. And so, and then we get to six of them. So we know six names there. So who were the 120 who gathered in the upper room? We don't know their names. Who were the 500 that Jesus appeared to after he rose again in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 or thereabouts? He said he, he appeared to 500 others. Who were they? Don't know their names. Who were the other 12 apostles mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 or 4? Don't know their names. Jesus was smart, man. He knew that he would rise and go away and there was work to be done. He didn't leave it with just 12. He did spend time with them. But I'd suggest to you there were about 600 others that he had shaped. And we know none of their names. They were extremely important, nameless, faceless people. And that's who we are, eh? And then spontaneous expansion happens because now we begin to do what we were called to do. And what are we called to do? I have been set apart or aside by Christ to assist him in setting others apart. This is mission. I remember uh, going to the Bangladesh border some years ago and it was a mission conference and there were about 2,000 attendees and out of the 2,000 attendees 32 were missionaries, the rest were check writers or uh, prayer warriors. Uh, we just put warrior next to prayer every time we say prayer. We just add warriors. Many are not. But the point was this, that at the end of the day, in a group of 2,000, 32 actually did the work. 1,968 did nothing. That's just nuts, eh? But we can't be like that. Pilgrim can't be like that. Acts 29 can't be like that. Because the actual mission happens through us, not through him, not through Anne. All they are meant to do is teach us how to be people who know how to work with Christ in assisting him to set others aside. Is that easy? Much easier than you and I think. I mean, there are four categories in a church, in any church. If you want to go to the next slide. Uh, this is a, these are, you can divide a church into these four categories. There are people who are able and available. By the way, that's a rarity, eh? It's not like um, people are knocking at um, Shell's door saying, hey, please, please. No, so you got one group of people that are able and available. Uh, but that's, uh, that's a small percentage who, kn- who are able. They know they have some abilities and gifts. They have figured it out over the last 10 years or 2 years or 40 years. And they are available. They, to, to be available, you have to create time. You can only create time if you prioritize right. Time is always created by priority. 
Time is always created by priority, nothing else. You can create as much time as you want through prioritizing. I mean, if I want to spend time with you, my God, man, I'll find ways to spend time with you. If I don't want to spend time with you, (laughs) And so, able is one thing. God gives abilities. Availability is your personal decision-making. And if you say you have no time, then we can talk about that another day. The next category is the most common category in church, which is able, unavailable. People are able, and almost all of us are able. I mean, when uh, Shell was asking, or Shell was talking about, uh, is the Spirit of God laying something on your heart? All of us have been given the Spirit. All of us have one or two gifts, at least, and more as God uh, sees fit. All of us are able but many of us are not available. So that's the second category. Our intent is to keep moving towards able and available. The third category is unavailable, uh, sorry, unable and available. That's when it's the pastor's job to make sure that you're made able. Eh? One of the tendencies in churches and one of, the, one of the weaknesses of pastors and leaders is when they find someone unable but available, they make you an usher. And that is cruel. Because pastors and leaders don't want to take the time to train and equip. So why not give them a responsibility? Become an usher. I'm not saying that's what's happening at Pilgrim. I'm saying that's the common trend. We need ushers too. Yeah, we need ushers too. We need ushers too. But the point is this. That at the end, guess who were ushers in... Uh, the church in Acts chapter 6, they were Holy Spirit-filled, courageous, bold people, man. But if I, let's assume that Shell was at Acts 29, and he's unable but available, then it is my job to make sure that I draw out of this man the abilities that God has put in him. And that takes time, that takes effort. But that's supposed to be my only job. I'm, I'm only responsible to equip you. I'm responsible to draw out of you what is within you. That is what an equipper does. Everything else I do is added stuff that I should not be doing. I'm being irresponsible to God as a pastor when I take on additional responsibilities that you put on me because you pay me when my primary allegiance is... I am sent as an equipper, therefore I must equip. I know that sounds really harsh, but then I only get invited once a year so I can get away with it. (laughs) But that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to draw out of him his ability because he's available, but he's unable. And the last category, unable and unavailable, is not Christian. If you're unable and you're unavailable, then you must question your Christianity. Or change churches. One or the other. Because you can't be unable in Christ and you can't be unavailable because that category doesn't exist in the kingdom. And so, once we begin to move towards able, unavailable or able available, now God begins to take a group of people and says, shucks, you guys want to partner with me in setting others apart, so let's begin the process. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians um, 10, the passage we read, that it is through your growing in faith that our boundaries and sphere will expand. So that we reach into regions beyond what we have reached. Brilliant, eh? One of the ways the church begins to spread is not through the efforts of its pastor, prophet, teacher, apostle, evangelist. But through the efforts of ordinary saints who are reaching into places that a pastor can never enter. Never enter. Shell won't be accepted at your workplace. Yeah. I mean, my mom has this tendency to always introduce me as a pastor. And I had to tell her, I'm a, don't tell them I'm a pastor. 
Because the moment you tell someone you're a pastor, the conversation is over, man. They don't want to talk to you. And so she said, but aren't you proud to be a pastor? I, I said, I am, but not, I am with you, but not outside of you. Because when I meet with the world, I do not want to be known as a pastor. Because the moment you tell them you're a pastor, there are, there's a wall or there are certain expectations and people are no longer normal. Yeah. I mean, the business cards I carry in my pocket are many things. And uh, especially when I go to certain nations, you can't go in there as a pastor. Andre could go. I couldn't. And this was God's intent. Hey, can I get all of you to participate in this? And by the way, I'll appoint to you a few guys like Shell and Anne and Jacob and a few others who can equip you to, so that you do the work and you begin to see what I can do through you without going to Regent. <laughs> there are cheaper ways to get this done, man. <laughs> so, and here's God's intent. Uh, I want to send you out and help, ask you to help me to set others up, apart. And once you set them apart, I'm not setting them apart so that they get born again and stuff like that. That's just entry-level stuff. I want you to make disciples of people. I want you to make disciples of people. I'm not interested in you just getting people born again. That's great. But that's like having a baby and expecting the baby to stay as a baby forever. I mean, imagine that cute little baby. But if that baby stayed that way for three more years, you should see what the parents will do to the baby. (laughs) The hope is that you would begin to mature because at the that's the end game, eh? What's the end game of the church? The end game of the church is can we bring everybody into the maturity of Christ? Can we have people attain the same stature as Christ? That's the end game. The end game is not evangelism. It's a method. It's a it's an entry method into the kingdom. But the end game is so that we all look like Christ. Just imagine that, eh? God has huge expectations, man. And he, because he lives in us, has the ability to bring those expectations to pass. And his expectation is, Jacob, can you become like Jesus? That's the intent. I've asked this before when I came a couple of years ago. Um, Why did Jesus come down to the earth? The usual answer is he came down to the earth because he came to die for us and stuff like that. And all that is true. But one of the primary reasons Jesus came down to the earth is this. I have come to show you the Father. I have come to show you the Father. And so they asked him, so show us the Father. And then he makes this amazing statement. And he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And that's what we are supposed to do. Why are we here on earth? We have come to show you the Father. So show us the Father. If you have seen me, if you have seen how I treat my wife, if you have seen how I am with money, if you see me at work, if you see how I drive, if, I, if you see how I treat a refugee or a new immigrant, if you see me treat my children, you would have seen the Father. And this is where we choose a different pathway. When people ask, show us the Father, we say, Uh, I'll take you to my pastor. When people say, show us the Father, we say, come to church. When people say, show us the Father, we give them a, a DVD or give them a website to visit. We never say, come follow me, watch me for a while, and you will see the Father. There was a standing rule at Acts 29 for a while that if you met someone new and they wanted to know Jesus, you cannot bring them to the church for the first eight weeks. You have to take them home. And if they still want to follow your God after they come home, then bring them to church. Just imagine what would happen if we all began to attain the stature of Christ, eh? where we now dare to say, hey, one of the things I've decided at Acts 20 and once every two years is to stand to, and say to the church, hey guys, if you imitate in me in this area, you'll be imitating Christ. You do that with your children, don't you? Imitate daddy in this and you'll know how to fix this. What if you and I could stand before people who've been placed in our charge, be it a five-year-old in your Sunday school, or be it an entire congregation and say, hey, 
in this area, if you begin to imitate me, you would be imitating Christ. That would be nuts, man, but that is something we must aspire for because that's a model that has been left us by Paul. Because we are trying to get people saved without showing them how good the Father is. So we're saying get born again and our, and our carrot is you won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. Every religion has heaven and hell. What we want to offer to them is a God who is so good that he's irresistible. And therefore, I must show people the Father first. And then they should begin to say, hey, if this is the Father that you serve, I'd like a shot at him. And then you say, you want a shot at him? Well, then the only shot to him is through Christ. That is how it is supposed to be, I'd suggest. And by the way, God could have done this on his own, eh? He doesn't need us. He just wants us there. I mean, uh, if you go to the next slide, guys. Next one. Oh, yeah. Just, um, I love this picture. It's a father and a son. Imagine a father and a son going. Uh, let's assume you are a painter and you take your son with you to paint a fence. It's his day, the son's day off. So you give him a small tin can of paint. You give him a small brush and he gets his overalls and you go and you start um, painting a fence, and every now and then the son just looks at the work he's done, and he admires it, and you let him do that. Occasionally, the son forgets that the paint is wet, and he leans on the fence, and now you have his handprint on the fence. And instead of firing him, you just laugh at it, and you leave the handprint there, because he's your son, he's not your employee. And you leave it there. It'll stay there forever. It's a mistake, but it's a mistake you thrill at. Afternoon, you sit down, and you open your big lunch pack. The boy opens his little tiffin, and you both eat your sandwich, and the boy feels like, man, I've done a day's work. Occasionally, you rub the sweat off your brow, and the boy goes and rubs the sweat off his brow. And then come evening, the fence is painted, and uh, you're packing up, and the boy just stands there, looks at his handiwork, and is awful proud that he was able to finish this fence. And you both go home, and he goes dashing to your wife or to his mom. And he says, Mama, you won't believe what we did today. We painted an entire fence. And you stand there letting him take all the glory, not interrupting, not saying you did most of the work, because you enjoy the fact that your boy was with you, and you have absolutely no problem with him taking the glory. This is what the father does. He doesn't need me, but he wants me there because I'm his son. He enjoys it. And my God, occasionally when I make mistakes, he looks at my heart and says, boy, I'm going to leave that handprint on the wall because I'll look at that and laugh at it forever. And then one day you and I can both laugh at it. This is how simple and joyful it was supposed to be. I wasn't meant for a few pastors and a few um, professionalized people. It was meant for all of us. What a shame if in a church of 100 people, five got to experience this and 95 got to pay for it. That'd be terrible. That'd be missing out on so much. It was meant for all of us to make disciples. Why? Because we want to raise up another group of people in Vancouver. How many people? Hey, in the book of um, Romans, you would see that it would be a small household of maybe 10 people at the most, 70. And all would get involved. If you look at Romans 16, the last chapter, you would see names there. Man, that one, pastors, that one, nothing. One was a servant in Herod's uh, palace. Another one was a woman called Phoebe who was pretty well-to-do because she seemed to have a lot of money. Another one was a, a, a person who didn't have much money but had a small home. You would see so many names there. All of us were supposed to be involved in this adventure. Why? Because we... Want to do what the father's doing. He's taking us along. He can do it on his own. But he wants you there. He doesn't need you, but he wants you there. In this adventure, and while we go on this adventure, suddenly Christian life becomes, oh shucks, this is so much better than Sunday services. Make disciples so that we can multiply churches. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea? No, in Vancouver, in Ontario, in Ohio, and in Timbuktu. Hey, one of the places God wants to release to you is the previous Ottoman Empire. 
Go anywhere you want. Romania, Bulgaria, Macedonia, Greece, Hungary. Ask for the nations. Ask him for Romania. Start there. Because I don't know you at all, but there's... Man, if you don't begin to engage and indulge in and go into places that scare you, you'll die. And it's time, because you've got a forehead like flint. And it is time to go and break down walls, dig up really hard ground, begin to speak prophetically, because you already know things, you discern things, you know them inside. Now to begin to speak them, without saying, thus says the Lord, so that people don't get frightened. But choose one of these nations. It's the old Ottoman Empire. And God will begin to give it to you one by one by one. Because you were born for this. eh? If you stayed female and cloistered, you will die. What does that mean? It means you've got to be a, a, a flint-like forehead um, child of God who doesn't get confined by either your gender or restrictions that are placed around you. And thank God you've got a husband that will allow you to. Um, this has to be weighed, of course, and all that, but I had to say it. <laughs> so how do we go about doing this, guys? Uh, do we need a lot of training for this? Uh, here are some super easy steps to go about being on mission on a 24-7 basis. And the first three, you need zero training for. The first one is seek. Hey, we don't look at people anymore, man. We don't look at people anymore. We pass them by. And so the first thing uh, we decided to do at Acts 29 is when we walk around, when we are in restaurants, when someone opens the door for us, when we go about, we'll actually look at people. (laughs) See, we don't look at people. We are so scared to look at someone in the eye, man. We don't even smile at them. We don't recognize faces, eh? What happens when you're going up the elevator and you hear steps coming? You quickly press close because you want the elevator all for yourself. I mean, all of us have done this. Yet Jesus had this amazing ability to seek people out. And he would notice them. They'd be hurrying him through places and he would stop. He would either hear them or he would notice them. And he would stop. Seek. To seek is just to give person their dignity. That's what seeking really means. To seek somebody out is to look someone in the face and recognize that you are the pinnacle of what God has made. You were made in the image of God. I see you. That is critical, man. Evangelism without that is just an exercise. To seek. And seek, why? Because I want to build a relationship with the person. So I'll deliberately wait when I'm parking my car because I see somebody else parking their car and getting out. So this gives me an opportunity to actually look at them and maybe spend two minutes going up the elevator with them and in the process begin to talk and look at them in their face, ask them their name, tell them my name, and now a relationship has begun. Build relationships. We do this on a regular basis. Go to the same restaurant again and again, even though the food isn't all that good. Till you begin to develop a relationship. Once we do stuff like these, this, crusades won't have to be done ever again. Crusades are things of the past. Eh? Jesus never did crusades. People would turn up. But th- this idea that we have that it still works is so not true, man. You don't go for crusades anymore. People, people want things to happen on a one-on-one. And this is one brilliant way to do it. The next thing is open your homes. This is the scary part. Now that you've built a relationship, you actually open your home for people to come home. And that's when they realize that this thing is serious. Open your homes. Every home in this church must be open to strangers and friends. Guys, this is how it was built in the early church and God is not an early God or a late God he's like I am so most of the things he thought of were supposed to last through centuries he knew Facebook would come and completely 
destroy the fabric of society, that there would be no one-on-one relationships anymore. And he knew then, and he set up a system where you open your home so people can come. The Lord's table, uh, communion, is perfect for homes. It was meant to be a home thing. Where strangers come and you sit with them and uh, while you're eating, you take bread and you say, um, "Most um, we eat this bread because we need strength. And God said, uh, I'll be your strength. So why don't we partake in this bread? And you don't have to check whether they're baptized. You're just presenting the gospel through communion. Because if someone partakes in communion without being born again, it's not like they go to a special hell. They still go to hell. <laughs> or when we take the juice, it's, uh, how about saying something like, um, most gods demand an offering, but uh, the God we serve poured himself out as an offering. So let's just drink. It is so simple. The homes are conducive places for this. The first three steps, anybody can do, guys. And then the next four, we might need to be disciples so that we can make disciples where you now make the good news known. The good news is not that we are going to heaven. The good news is that God is no longer our enemy. He's our friend. He wants to be our father and he can be our father through Christ. That's the good news. Minister and pray. It always works, man. We've been trying this out for the last three and a half years. Eh? People are turning up into these houses that we call... Um, I don't remember. And so people just turn up. And all we do is eat, uh, play games, share scripture, maybe read a passage like you read today. And then at some point when they're beginning to talk about their mom, whose left ankle is hurting, it just so happens that there's someone in that group whose mom had a right ankle that was hurting and got healed. And now the person says, do you think you can pray for my mom? And the story begins. And God always shows off. When it's an unbeliever. And you're praying thinking, this never happens. My ankle still hurts, but let's just give it a shot. And then the person comes back and says, my mom's ankle got healed. And you're thinking, how did he do that when I've been struggling with my ankle all this time? But he always puts on the ritz when it comes to outsiders. Minister and pray. Lead people to faith. And then teach them into maturity. The last four steps might take time. But the first three, guys, you can start practicing this today. When you go to White Spot now, uh, or wherever you go after this, <laughs> to your favorite restaurant, look them in the face, eh? Look them in the face. And make sure you leave big tips. i got to begin to wind down. Guys, uh, uh, do you want to go to the next one? Slide? Yeah. Um, more important than any healing, any prophetic, any ministry is this idea of having good homes, good lives, and good works. As in, if I can bring someone home and they see me treating my wife well and my children well, now they see something that they don't have because most people don't have good homes. We as Christians don't have good homes. We are struggling with it. But what if this was something that we placed value on? This is why Paul would spend almost an entire chapter in every episode writing about the home, about the workplace. And you would think to yourself, why does Paul repeat himself? Masters, be nice to your servants. Servants, obey your masters. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Wives, honor your husbands. Why? Because it was a strange thing in the Roman Empire to have good homes. And it's a strange thing in this empire to have a good home. Good lives. As in, it doesn't matter whether you earn 20000 a month or $200 a month. How to live life in a way that reflects that you've got a good manager in God. Good lives. And then finally, good works. Let the, uh, Jesus put it this way. Let them see your good works and they will glorify the Father. Good works as in, when you begin to do things for people without any apparent reason. Hey, how do you feel when someone who's selling Amway comes and sits you down, listens to your testimony, feeds you like crazy, and then sells your product? You feel like you just got gypped. Why is it that we should think that when we go and do that to somebody, they should feel elated that you called them home, fed them, fattened them up for the kill, and then presented Jesus? What if we actually built relationships? And over a period of time, they see good homes, good lives, good works. Now you're not selling a product. Now they're desperate to get what you have. And when you have good lives, good homes, good works, guess what happens? 
It authenticates the good news. Now you have the right to say what you say. It's been a stretch for me opening my home, eh? I love my home. I don't like you coming to my house. I like my space. I'll meet you in a restaurant, but not at home. But guess what? This has had to change. Guys, um, as you begin this journey, God will take you on different uh, adventures. And all that is required um, when God takes you on mission adventures, be it as an individual or as a church, is two things, foolishness and obedience. Foolishness and obedience. Foolishness provokes the Holy Spirit. You've got to be foolish. There's not a single story in the Bible that makes it to Hebrews 11 where someone wasn't foolish. Okay. Uh, so, guys, um, here are some really cool stories that happen when you're foolish. And this is part of what makes um, mission attractive for us as individuals and as a church. Eh? Um, f- for years, we've been praying for Mongolia, and then God says, go to Mongolia. The only guy I knew who had gone to Mongolia before was Andre. And so I talked to him about it, and he put me in touch with someone. He and Lauren put me in touch with someone, and they gave me an email. That's all I have. And felt God saying, go to Mongolia. So we go to Mongolia, and uh, I've checked into a hotel, and now there's nothing to do. The first day goes by. The second day goes by. The third day goes by. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a really bad idea. Should not have come to Mongolia. And then this guy in the green shirt turns up and says, uh, why are you here? So I said, really don't know. Um, have no reason to be here. He says, that's not possible. Anyone who from the West who comes to Mongolia always has an agenda. What's yours? So I said, I really don't know. So he left me. He took me for a walk. He um, um, asked me if I wanted to come to church. He knew I was a pastor. Wouldn't let me anywhere near the pulpit. Uh, Didn't ask me to preach. Didn't ask me to do nothing. Just made me walk with him and talk. And I hate walking. And um, after... Four days, man, I was thinking to myself, Father, um, not much has come out of this trip, but you asked me to come, and that's it, so it's done. And then after that, on the day before I was heading back to Vancouver, he calls me home. And he calls me home, and he says, "Um, I've been watching you for four days. And he says, you actually have no agenda. And he says, two years ago, a prophet came to this church, and he prophesied, saying, there is a man who will come to your church. And he comes from a city that is on the same longitude as, uh, same latitude as uh, uh, Mongolia. And when he comes, open your entire church to him and whatever he tells you, go with it. And he says, I've been watching you for four days and I've checked where you come from on the map. You are that man. I just want to say to you, whatever you want to do, do. For the next four and a half years, we went from one end of Mongolia to the other. And crazy things. Uh, it's yeah crazy things happen Lauren came with us once Um, he experienced some of it some of the other pictures uh, are those of shamans who got changed this was another thing that happened just a few months ago felt that we must go to Dubai um, in three days just felt God saying there's a guy from Indonesia who's coming to Dubai I'd heard of him, the guy with the scarf and he might one day end up being the next president of Indonesia, at present he's a governor he's standing for elections felt God saying, go meet him so I called Derek um, Don's brother and a couple of others and I said, let's go meet this guy in Dubai so we flew into Dubai, now that might sound absurd how can you just pick up and leave and go to Dubai if you sense God saying stuff, you've got to be foolish and try it. it it is likely that you may get it wrong, in which case you'll fall flat on your nose, but you'll be falling in the right direction. And so I went to Dubai and met this guy there. And uh, he is a strong Muslim. That was his Muslim advisor. Began to speak to him, and he began to open up his heart to Jesus. And took two businessmen, three businessmen from the church with me. Because one of the things I think we should do is also get the entire church with all its gifts involved in mission. And guess what happened in the next picture? The businessman got deals worth twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars through one meeting with this man, man. And now this man seeks counsel, saying, What is Jesus saying? He clearly knows it's Jesus, because some of the things spoken to him have begun to happen. And the last story is this one. Uh, sometimes, guys, don't worry about being flawed. Don't worry about not getting all your words right. God will still come through. 
I was in South Africa and it was a worship service and suddenly felt God saying, go up and sing. I said, no, because the guy who was singing was really good. Like he had produced CDs and all. If you sing, you better be good, eh? And if someone's better than you, better not go up. So I, so I refused to go up and this, um, felt God saying, go up. And I said, no, I won't. And then because he was being so insistent, I said, so if I go up, what do you want me to do? I felt God saying, when you go up, I'll give you the words. And I said, no. Because... <laughs> God doesn't rhyme stuff, eh? Like we do fears, tears, grace, faith. He doesn't do anything like that. So I knew it wouldn't sound good. But because he kept insisting, finally went up and I closed my eyes. Most worship leaders close their eyes because they're scared. And so, <laughs> so I closed my eyes and I began to sing. And uh, I was sweating, man, because it was like words that I didn't know that I was singing and it didn't sound good. It sounded really clumsy. And so I finished, I went back, and then I waited around to see if anyone would come and say, good job, and nobody did. <laughs> Most times when pastors hang around after the service, it's because they want encouragement. And so, so <laughs> nobody patted me on my back, and I went home and I told God I'll never do this again. One week later, I get a letter from this lady. Here's what it said. South Africans can be pretty uh, straight. Um, we were having, you don't remember me, but I came up, tried to meet you, I couldn't. We were having beautiful worship. And then you went up. (laughs) And you began to sing. And it was in a monotone. And I thought to myself, why doesn't he go sit down? He's spoiling the beautiful worship. But you went on and on and on and on. (laughs) And so finally I began to listen to your words. And it was not about healing. You were just singing about the Father's love. And then she writes saying, I've been suffering from clinical depression for the last 10 years. I suddenly felt like God picked me up by my hair, dipped me in a crystal clear pool of water and pulled me out. And for the first time in 10 years, I knew that my depression had lifted. It's been three weeks now. And I want you to know that this morning, my husband and I went and we um, flushed the pills that I've been taking for the last 10 years down the toilet because I don't need it anymore. And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't want to go up. I was reluctant. I was disobedient. I hated what I did. It was clumsy. It didn't come out right. It didn't rhyme. I said I'd never do it again. It was flawed. But one thing was established, man. At the end of the day, the words that I speak to you, as long as they are spirit and life, they will bring life. The mechanism may be faulty. Life will still flow. It's been two and a half years, man. She's still absolutely free. Amen. Jacob, thank you. Thank you. We're here at Pilgrim Church. We're working in a season of new life. When we came, this church was in decline. It's stabilized. We're starting to see those little miracles, but it can't just be me and Anne. What he shared about how we engage is so important as a body. And there's so many great things going on in this, the kingdom across Vancouver, different churches. But I hope you take to heart what you've heard this morning and put feet to it, and put words to it.